Hi, I'm Karen and I'm one of the pastors at Les Murdy Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us for this message. What you will experience is part of our regular service. And if you would like to join us for a full service, just type lbc.online.church into your web browser. Hello, everyone. This is the first time, welcome back, onlineers. This is the first time we've actually sent the onlineers to do something different while we were doing that worship. So I'm just waiting for the nod from down the back to say that we're all back in together, and we are, which is great, in person and online. Well, we are at our weeks, oh, I should introduce myself first, a few visitors here today. My name's Karen, I'm one of the pastors here at Les Murdy Baptist, and it's great to see you in this space today. Uh, we're in week six of a series that we've called The Stuff of Life. Let's turn my notes around there. And uh, we, we borrowed that title unashamedly from a book by an Australian author, Carl Faze, called The Stuff of Life. And the series is basically about uh, how we can navigate life well in the middle, in the everyday. So we're kind of trying to, if you can imagine, draw a roadmap, not with step-by-step -step GPS precise coordinates of how you should step at every moment, but a roadmap that's got some big signs and, and uh, markers, navigational markers, if you like, that will give you some idea of the boundaries of, of, uh, of how to travel well, how to navigate life well in the middle. And so we've looked at the signpost or the marker of love in the first week. Uh, we've looked at forgiveness. We've looked at wisdom. We've looked at uh, friendship or relationships. And last week, Josh looked at money and talked about how our attitudes and actions with regards money uh, can help us make good decisions or otherwise as we live life in the everyday. And we've done all that, of course, from the point of view of a Christian worldview. We're a church. Uh, many of us are followers of Jesus. So we've tried to look at these markers from the point of view of a Christian worldview. And today I'm going to add to the map the marker of grace. Just five little letters, short word, beautiful name. But in the context of the Christian worldview, in the context of the Bible, in the context of being a Jesus follower, grace is a huge concept, wouldn't you say? A difficult concept. And in fact, what I'm going to do is give you a minute online and in person to just uh, think where you're sitting or turn around and chat with someone else. Could you define to the person sitting next to you what you understand grace is? And 60 short seconds, two big questions. Where does justice fit into grace? Go. Hey, how'd you go? A lot of conversation. <laughs> if you had a really great answer, please write it down and give it to me afterwards. Online, you can write it down and Dawn will take note of it. Um, it's, a, it's a big concept. It's, it's often good just to start with what it is that you understand about a thing. Now, what I'm going to try and do today is give us a little bit more of an understanding, hopefully, or a, a, something to hang um, some of our thoughts on about what grace is. And I'm going to do that by telling you two stories. One of them is a very famous and well-known uh, fictional story, um, although it's got some, yeah, based in real life aspects to it. And the other one is a true story from the Bible. I'm going to start with the fictional story, but before I tell you either of those, I want to tell you where I hope we're going to land. Because I think that sometimes it helps to know our destination because then you can engage with what you're hearing along the way with that destination in mind. So where I hope we're going to land is at, is at an understanding that grace is two things. It is the thing that frees us and the thing that binds us to a different way of living. So grace is at once freedom 
and it is a bond or even a pledge to live life in a different way. Grace sets us free and binds us to live differently. That's where I hope we're going to land, and I hope it's going to make sense when we get there. But listen to these stories with that in mind and be critical as you go through and, and think about those things. Okay, story one. This story is La Miserable. I've got a... Uh, beautiful French-speaking person in there. That's really unfortunate today. You can speak to me about my pronunciation afterwards. Was that all right? I've listened to the pronunciation thing on the computer and been practicing it. Yeah. Le Miserable. Okay. Who has seen or knows the story of Le Miserable? Hands up if you've seen the, uh, the musical at the theatre. Who's seen the movie? Who has read the book? You're kidding me. I bow down at your feet. It's huge. Wow, okay. Oh, sorry, over, a few more. I thought nobody would... There's at least four of you that have read the book. Wow, that's awesome. Okay. Well, just in case you haven't read it or you're not really 100% sure about the story, let me just tell you a few things that are going to help us make sense of what I want to share with you today. It was written by Victor Hugo and published in 1862, and it's considered to be a semi-autobiographical account of what life was like after the uh, French Revolution. It was actually published about 80 years after the French Revolution. And again, a reminder of history, the French Revolution happened over about a 10 or 11 year period um, back in the late 1700s, so in the, in the 18th century. And it, it's the thing that is credited with taking France from a monarchy, um, <laughs> the French lady's nodding, so this is good so far, uh, from, from, from a monarchy with, which was characterised by three layers of social hierarchy into uh, a republic based on democracy eventually, though. Uh, in reality, I understand between the revolution and Victor Hugo writing, there were still had been decades of chaos and a lot of violence, and life was still pretty awful for most French people for many years after the revolution, and it was a while before France could say that they were enjoying a stable democracy. So when Hugo wrote, most people were very familiar with th the three layers of social hierarchy that had been associated with the corrupt French uh, monar monarchy. And I just want to tell you very briefly about those. You'll need to know that for later on. So there were three estates, they were called. The third estate was where most people were placed. 95% of the French population were considered to be third estate people. And it was basically everyone. Farmers, lawyers, teachers, shopkeepers, business owners, doctors. All those people were in the third estate. They had no political influence and no power and tot were totally at the mercy of the higher two estates. The second estate was the monarchy or the nobility, uh, and they held the bulk of the power until that very famous um, beheading of the last Queen of France, Marie Antoinette, in 1793. The first estate was only about 2% of the population, but they owned 20% of French real estate. That'd be pretty awesome, wouldn't it? Own a little bit of French real estate? So 2% of the population, they owned about 20% of the French real estate. They paid no taxes. They had enormous power, wealth and influence and did not use it for the 95 percenters. They used it to make more power, more wealth, more influence for themselves. This group, this first estate, they didn't lose their heads as some in the monarchy literally did back in the revolution, but they were disliked. They were disliked before, during and after the revolution and they were the clergy. 
Okay, today is not the time to tell you the whole story. You can watch the 2012 Hugh Jackman movie this afternoon, if you like, although a beautiful day, maybe save it for a rainy day. But I want to introduce you to just three of the characters and tell you just one short scene, and we've got a little clip of it we'll show you in a little bit. So from the first estate, but not very characteristic of the first estate, that was the clergy, you recall, we have Bishop Miriel. And he gets promoted by Napoleon to a new parish, a very uh, lucrative parish. He gets given a mansion of a house and a fairly big stipend, but his house is actually next door to a very rundown hospital that is, is physically in bad repair and overrun with patients. So Bishop Miriel says to the owners of the hospital, the, the administration of the hospital, take my house. He moves out and he lets the hospital move into his awesome mansion. He then says, I only need one-tenth of my pay. I'm going to use the rest to give away to people in need. So, you know, he, he does this. He basically spends his life serving. He's been given a free pass, effectively, by Napoleon to schmooze with the most powerful and influential people. He could have climbed right up that church ladder and been right at the top of that first estate, if you like. But he decided to live differently. Okay, so that's Bishop Muriel. Got him? The next one is Javert. The, the tragic bad guy, the, the uh, direct opposite, really, to the bishop, I guess. He stands for justice, for a very strict and legalistic judgment. He's a police inspector and a moral citizen, and he works tirelessly for law, moral order, and justice. And he believes passionately that um, human beings can only be saved from the evil that is in their soul if justice is meted out on them. That's the only way you could be saved. Justice must be meted out on you. And he believes that the law um, upholds morality. So if you don't uphold the law, then society will go into moral disorder and fall apart. Now, just as, a, as an aside, it's quite easy to dislike Javert, I think. But I want you to think about this with me for a moment, because I was thinking about how, how unlikable he was in the week. And then I thought about this. How do you and I feel when... Um, you're watching the news, or maybe nothing even as important as that. You're watching a movie, and somebody does something that's clearly wrong and is clearly not called to pay. How do you feel about that? <laughs> Bring it closer to home. How do you feel when someone hurts you or hurts someone you love, and they are really not held to account for that? How do you feel? I reckon that's a Javert moment. <laughs> In most of us, hey, spare him a thought. Okay, one more character for now. Jean Vajon, from the third estate, as was Javert. Um, he steals bread, you know the story, I'm sure. He steals bread because his sister's got seven starving children. Um, and he gets caught and he gets sent to jail, but he rails against the injustice of that. So he tries to escape and he gets caught and he sets back to jail for a longer time because he escaped. So he escapes again and you get the picture. 19 years for stealing bread, he ends up being in jail. Well, really for continuing to try and escape. And the scene that I want to share with you is as Jean Vajon has just come out of prison... He's, you, you get that feeling, he, he's not a bad guy, he wants to live a good life, right? But he, he's got to carry this yellow passport that uh, convicted felons had to carry for the rest of their life. And, you know, you had to show it, and then no one was going to give you a job. 
No one was going to give you a meal. No one was going to house you. No one really wanted to have anything to do with you. So he's not been out of prison very long. He's homeless, he's hungry, and he's increasingly hopeless. But he hears about this bishop. So he knocks on his door, and the bishop uh, very famously gives him a meal and uh, lets him uh, stay for the night. But as he's lying on that bed, thinking, well, that's one good meal. That's one night on a bed. He thinks, Jean Valjean thinks about all the silver that he's seen in the bishop's home and how many meals and how many nights lodging that might just buy him. And when the bishop is asleep, as I say, you probably know the story, he fills a sack with as much as he could carry and sneaks off into the night. Here's what happened next. Oh, you've got him stealing it. There you go. <laughs> Get in there! Pipe down! Stay there! Monsignor, we have your silver. We caught this man red-handed. Get the nerve to say you gave him this. That is right. But my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot. I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? Monsieur, release him. This man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. Now God's blessing go with you. But remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have saved your soul for Jean Valjean was a thief. He stole that silver, and the law said, you go to prison. But when the police brought him in to the bishop, the bishop looks at him and says, yeah, I gave you that stuff, but friend, what were you doing? You forgot the most precious items. You forgot these two silver candlesticks. And he gave him the candlesticks as well. The bishop freed Jean Valjean even though he had done those wrong things. He freed him. He told the policeman that Jean Valjean had spoken the truth. Yes, I gave those things to him. He freed him. But then he says, or he sings in the musical, of course, these words. Let me repeat them to you again in case you didn't catch them. Remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, 
God has raised you out of darkness. And then these words, I have bought your soul for God. Wow. With those words, Bishop Muriel reminds Jean Van Jean that the gift of his freedom comes hand in hand with a, with a request, a bondage, a call to live a better life. Yes, you're free. Take this. Take more. And go and live differently now. That's what grace is. Grace is undeserved freedom that binds us to live better lives. Undeserved freedom that binds us to live better lives. Okay? So keep that story in your head. And I want to tell you a story from the life of Jesus who met many, many, many Jean Valjeans in his life. This one is from John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. I'll read the story to you, or you can follow it as well if you'd like to. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Oh, can you imagine that? Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were, of course, trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, like agreeing that was the law, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When his accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Well, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Let's just think about that for a minute. Jesus, actually the only one in the crowd who could have picked up a stone. Because he was without sin. He said to the woman, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Okay, now this, if, if you can just sit in the story for a minute, it's a pretty intense situation, okay? Happening out there on the streets. It's intense because the local religious authorities were trying to trap Jesus. You know, they knew that he was going to probably err on the side of compassion. He'd done that all his life. And they thought, oh, here's a way we can catch him out. We know what the law is. He knows what the law is. He's bound to try and be compassionate. We can catch him. So it was also intense because, in fact, justice was at stake. Justice is a real thing. It was also intense, an intense situation because a vulnerable human being was being used to make a point, being dragged out and stood in the front of the crowd. She was being used to make a point. Now, I'm not saying, and I don't think the story is saying, that the woman hadn't done the thing she was accused of. I'm not saying that. But she was certainly being used to make a point. You know, the religious leaders, like the, the French first estate, although unlike Bishop Muriel, they didn't care about her or her life. They were using her to make a point and uh, ensure their power, their influence, their privilege. 
They clearly felt morally superior to her. They were clearly on the side of justice, and they just were. They were on the side, the correct side of the law. That's just a fact. Um, she had broken the law, and, and justice had to be meted out in their minds so that to hold the moral corruption of society at bay. And in the middle of all of this intensity, Jesus bends down and writes in the dust. Now, that wasn't an uncommon practice for teachers uh, back in the day before blackboards or white, you know, smart screens and shared screens and all those sorts of things. But we don't know what Jesus was writing in the dust, and that has consumed so many people for hundreds and hundreds of years. What was he writing? Why didn't someone lean across and then record it? Somebody, somebody said that, or lots, a number of people say that perhaps what he was writing was a list of other sins besides adultery, like hypocrisy and pride and other things that, you know, I might not, I might not think that I'm like this woman with adultery, but, oh, yeah, that one, that one, that one. Maybe he was writing a list of other sins. I don't know, maybe he was trying to diffuse a tense situation by breaking eye contact with the accusers and just trying to bring it all down a peg. Somebody, a number of commentators, suggest that maybe he was actually winding it up and he was showing contempt to the accusers by the modern, well, you know, the first century equivalent of doodling on a pad because you're bored and what the person's saying isn't very interesting to you. I don't know. We don't know what he was doing. But whatever he was doing, after a time, Jesus actually basically agrees that the law, that justice, if you like, calls for this woman to be killed. You know, he says, all right. Stands up, all right, that is the law. You're not wrong about that. And then he invites anyone without sin, anyone who has never broken the law of Moses, to throw the first stone. Oh, that must have been a powerful, powerful moment. And you know the story I just read to you before long, Jesus and the woman are the only ones left in the centre of the crowd. There's still a crowd watching. What's going to happen here? but they're the only ones left in the centre. The accusers just walked away quietly. And I feel like when Jesus says to her, where are your accusers gone? Well, I don't condemn you either. It's a little bit like the silver candlestick moment. Right there. Jesus clearly gave that woman the gift of her freedom. Quite literally. <laughs> the gift of life. But then he says something to her that reminds her that the gift of freedom actually binds her to a different way of living. You see that? The freeing and the binding to a different way of living. He doesn't tell the woman that adultery is okay. God-given law and justice does matter. It does. But it matters because it's like a light that shines into the dark places of our own brokenness our own mistakes, our own evil, the things that you and I do that break relationships down instead of building them up. That's why, that's why the law matters. That's why God's justice matters and God's law matters because it shines a light into the dark places. But unfortunately, we often end up using justice like a weapon instead of a light to shine into the darkness. And whenever I use justice against you, or you against me, or we use the law and what we know is just and right against them, then we are putting ourselves in, that, in a, a position of self-righteousness. We're not 
pointing people to God and to Jesus in the way that, uh, that shines a light on our bad behaviour and points to what Jesus has done. We are putting ourselves up as judge and jury and making it all about the things that we can do and the things that we control and the way that we can make sure that society doesn't fall in a heap by meeting out this justice on the people around us, just like Javert or the Pharisees. And like I say, the point of the law and justice is actually to show us God's good ways and to point us to Jesus who says, you give me that, I'll deal with that. Give me that, I'll deal with that. Give me that, I will deal with that. I want to deal with that for you. It's my gift to you. Yeah, it's undeserved, you did the thing. It's an undeserved gift. And what comes with it is a bond to live differently. It's a bond to live a better life. To be better women, to be better men, better sons and daughters, better friends, better partners, better teachers, better doctors, better workers. You know, the bishop freed Jean Vajon and bound him to use the gift of silver to do something honest and good and relationship building with his life. And if you know the story, of course, he went on to be an incredible man in the community and he gave a Fantine's daughter, an opportunity to thrive even after her mum had died. Um, he lets Javert, the, the law keeper who had crushed him again and again throughout the story, he lets him go free when he could have actually ended his life. And he also becomes a mayor and does great things for his town. And Jesus called the woman who he saved from being stoned to death to use the gift of her freedom to do something better with her life. We don't know the end of that story. I hope she did. I hope she did. And Jesus calls us, it's the same, to use the gift of freedom, undeserved freedom, to do something better with our lives. Same. You see, when we accept the gift of grace in Jesus, we are definitely free, but I would say that we're not our own. And that's not a bad thing. <laughs> definitely free, but not our own. We are free and bound to God. Remember that phrase? I have bought your soul for God. We are free and bound to God to live better, kinder, wiser, more gracious, fairer, more just, more generous lives. And we're free because we know the enormity of what has been gifted to us. And if you can think about this, I don't know, I think we're, I am too cerebral often to really understand this. There's nothing I can do to make that grace gift bigger. And there's nothing I can do to make God take the grace gift away from me. That's enormous. You know, Victor Hugo, the historians and people that know, say probably wasn't a follower of Jesus, wouldn't have called himself a Christian. But even he saw the potential for the church. That's what's so extraordinary about this, this work. He saw the potential that if a people who claim that they are saved by grace actually got active in the world, what hope would there be for the world? He saw that. 
He saw that. That's why he made Bishop Muriel, you know, from the first, that despised first estate, he made him a hero in his book. Because he could see what could happen if a group of people who believe they are saved by grace stepped out into the world and became the hope of the world. And I want to say to you, people of Lesbody Baptist Church, those that are here, those that are online this morning, Jesus has also freed us from our destructive actions and our destructive attitudes, and he's bound us to live better lives. He's won our souls so that our relationships, our homes, our church, our community, our workplaces can be better places, can in fact in the end be fairer places, be places where there is justice, where there is kindness. I want to say to us as we finish today, let's go in today with these, into today and the rest of this week with these words ringing in our ears. We are free to live better lives. That's what grace is. We are free in an undeserved way, but we are not our own. We are free and bound to live better lives because of that freedom. So I want to ask you as we come to the end of the service this morning, what would that sort of grace, the free but bound to be better, what would grace like that look like as you go into the rest of today, as you go into tomorrow, and you go into the rest of your week and what lies ahead of you? What will grace look like in your life, in my life, if we live it in that space where we understand we are undeservedly free and with that beautiful gift that I can't add to or take away from comes the, 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 the bondage, if you like, the being bound to be someone who lives a better life in the strength of our Father God through the power of his Holy Spirit and because of Jesus. I hope that resonates with you. I found that a really uh, great message to prepare and think about and there's probably other more technical and possibly more useful definitions of grace you might find. You might want to go away and leap off this one. But when I tried to pare it down to just that very simple thing, grace is at once incredible freedom, the like of which you'll never know. But you're not your own. With that gift, you're not your own. We are bound to live better lives, liberated to live better lives. What's that going to look like in the next couple of hours? rest of today, this week. Shall we pray together? Father God, you are a complex and mysterious. We're glad that you came to us as Jesus because that we can just about begin to understand something about. <laughs> we recognise another human being in him. But we also acknowledge that there's so much that is beyond our, our proper grasping, grasping or understanding. And grace is one of those things. In so many ways, it doesn't make sense to us as human beings because, you know, we get Javert. And we also get that your law isn't a random set of rules. You know, law matters. And we seem deeply wired to get that. <laughs> and certainly not so much with my sin, but with other people's sin, to have the justice worked out on that. We sometimes struggle to understand 
where grace fits into that picture. And so I want to pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that the, the seeds that have been planted today, perhaps some understanding or light that has come in today, perhaps some questions or some um, things that people have disagreed with or wondered about, whatever is planted today, may it be something that we do take into our week and ask you to continue to show us what it means to be people whose lives are characterised by grace. And help us to be bold enough and open enough to learn to live with the paradox of being at once undeservedly free, not being able to adjust that, take or add to that in any way, and at the same time being bound because of that freedom to live differently. May we as a church family be known to be people of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.